Hey everyone, a quick note before we start today's episode, I want to point you to our brand new website at guiltgracepod.com for all things guilt, grace, gratitude, all of our podcasts, their categories by type, by episode, by season, by author, by topics, by all those good things. So everything guilt, grace, gratitude podcast you can find at guiltgracepod.com. Dot com, as well as our brand new confessional podcast network, which will be housed at confessionalpods.com. We have our inaugural sets of podcasts who have joined us, and we have more who are coming on board pretty soon. And you can also find the confessional podcast network on anywhere good podcasts are found. If you guys can help us in any way financially, go to guiltgracepod.com to give and donate. We have a lot of big plans for 2023 and beyond. and We would love for you to partner and support and build this bridge to confessional reform theology with us. Now, let's get on to this episode. But uh, one of the things that I tried to do in the book is to... Uh, debunk a certain way of doing the history of philosophy, which you can see in, say, uh, the history of ancient philosophy. Ancient philosophy is sometimes depicted as sort of like, well, ancient peoples used to be very religious. They believed in mm-hmm. Zeus and whole, you know, the, the Homeric gods from the Iliad and the Odyssey. And then the philosophers came along and started thinking scientifically about yep. the world and so we have a sort of a narrative that science replaces religion and that gives rise to philosophy. And I think that's just historically a false narrative. Welcome to the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic reform tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And we are sponsored by Logos Bible Software. And today we're on a season five apologetics episode. We're honored to have Dr. Stephen Evans on today. We're going to be talking about Western philosophy, and it is uh, mainly inspired by his uh, book, A History of Western Philosophy. We'll put it on the show notes, a link, published by IVP Academic. So we're going to talk to him here in a moment. Uh, as always, some reminders on some of the show notes, of course, a link to IVP so you can get this book. And then also a link to find the closest Reformed churches near your area or someone else that you know. So you can type in a zip code and find the closest confessional or Reformed denominations near you. Uh, there's also information about Bridge Builders. Uh, you, you heard me mention Logos Bible Software. They're our main sponsor. We have some other sponsors. You're going to hear words from them about the middle of this show. And you also some individuals. Some people are also... Bridge Builders as well. And how you do that is you click the Patreon link and you find the different levels of giving. We just put that out there so you guys know in case anybody is able to help us uh, fund us to keep growing the show. It's a couple years old and we're growing and we need needs for more bandwidth and support and all that good stuff that uh, any growing podcast needs. But only if you can and willing. 
Uh, we're more than happy to have this show be free for the entire world. So other than that, um, you can find us some information on the show notes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is the exact same for both. It's at guiltgracepod. You can find us on email, which is guiltgracepod at gmail.com. You can find these conversations via video on YouTube. So type in our our podcast name, Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, hit subscribe. All our videos are categorized. As you guys know, we have different types of seasons, which are series of uh, doctrinal type of focus. For example, season five is apologetics. You have a category of that, and then you have a category for book club and then our other videos as well. So I think I explained enough of the show notes. So I'll let Peter further introduce Dr. Stephen Evans today. Yeah, we have Dr. C. Stephen Evans as a university professor of philosophy in the humanities at Bailey University. He's got a few other appointments that he'll let us know of what he's doing. One that's ending pretty soon, one that he's starting as well. Previously taught in the philosophy departments at Calvin College, St. Olaf, and Wheaton College. Published several books, including Kierkegaard, An Introduction, Natural Science, Knowledge of God, A New Look at Theistic Arguments, God and Moral Obligation, Why Christian Faith Still Makes Sense, and Philosophy of Religion. So it's a pleasure having you on to talk about philosophy, Kierkegaard, all these things. Thanks for coming on. It's great to be on. I'm delighted to be part of this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So um, those who don't know you, who are maybe hearing you for the first time or maybe reading you for the first time, is like, I wonder, wonder who this Dr. Evans is. So maybe let our listeners know a little bit about yourself, your background, and your current work and, and some interests as well. Yeah, I am. Um, well, I, I grew up in the South. Uh, I grew up in a Baptist church. I went to Wheaton College and uh, at Wheaton, I encountered philosophy, which I really didn't know what it was at the time. And uh, my very first course uh, taught by Stuart Hackett, we read a book by Kierkegaard called Purity of Heart is the Will One Thing. And I kind of got enchanted with Kierkegaard. And I've been reading him ever since 1965. So it's a long, long time. <laughs> mm-hmm writing about him for probably 50 years uh, now, or maybe something like that. Um, I did a PhD at Yale and uh, taught at a bunch of places, but uh, uh, very interested in the history of philosophy. So this book, in a way, is a culmination of a lot of things in my career. I, when I studied at Wheaton, I took a course in the history of philosophy from Arthur Holmes, had a big impact. So this book was sort of dedicated to Arthur and uh, it's not directly apologetics, but I mm-hmm. think it does provide a lot of background. Mm-hmm. It's very helpful for anyone who's interested in apologetics. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it definitely is. And it's yeah, good overview and uh, good information about some of these guys. And maybe a little bit more into your study philosophy in general. So what, what got you into, you talked about a, a couple books and some courses that you took. And then why specifically Soren, because I know you read a book on Soren Kierkegaard, but um, why specifically Soren Kierkegaard amongst all the other philosophers and everything else that you could have written or researched about? Well, I guess there are a lot, a lot of reasons. One is, I think Kierkegaard has a lot to say. Uh, he has something to say that's important to the church, even more important in today's world. And he also has something important to say to the secular world. Uh, the secular world, I'll start with a second. The secular mm-hmm. world has this sort of predominant narrative 
you hear among unbelieving intellectuals that goes something like this. Well, people used to be sort of credulous and, and they believed in God and they believed in Christianity. And then uh, during the Enlightenment, we started to learn about science and uh, uh, biblical scholarship came along and, and sort of we couldn't believe the Bible anymore was uh, the word of God. And so now that we have a scientific worldview, Christianity and religion are sort of old hat. And so really, we've just become too smart to be religious believers. Kierkegaard directly attacks that whole narrative. He says that the problem, uh, the reason if faith has declined, it's not declined because we become really intelligent or smart or because we know a lot more than we used to. It is declined because we have become uh, emotional pygmies. We, uh, we, maybe that's an offensive word, but we're, we're just at our emotional capacities have atrophied. And uh, it's because we, not because we're so smart, but because we're, you might say, emotionally so dumb <laughs> that Christianity no longer makes sense to us. The other thing is that our imaginations also have atrophied. So it's not so much that we uh, are too smart to believe in Christianity as that we don't even really understand it because we have so little imaginative under uh, power. Hmm. So he thinks the, uh, unlike a lot of apologists who want to sort of man the uh, battlements and say, let's, let's come up and give a lot of more evidence to buttress up Christianity. Here's mm -hmm. thinks that uh, the key to helping make Christianity live in the, in the world is to help people see how it meets human needs, how it connects with our uh, basic human needs and capacities, mm. and also uh, understand exactly how you might say beautiful and powerful yeah. the Christian story is. Uh, and then as far as the church, Kierkegaard is very, very opposed to the idea that was common and he lived in early 19th century Denmark, mm -hmm. which had a, a state church in those mm -hmm. days, still has a state church, uh, in which most people thought, well, oh, of course I'm a Christian. I'm Danish. Everybody's mm -hmm. a Christian. We're all Christians. It's a Christian country. I yeah. live in Christendom. Yeah, like cultural so, Christianity. Christianity was sort of taken for granted. Yeah. And Kierkegaard felt that that was uh, a big mistake. And so he calls himself actually a missionary. He says, my task is to reintroduce Christianity into Christendom because he thinks real Christianity has almost died out. People don't, hmm. don't understand it, don't, don't grasp it. Hmm. So, uh, and that's, I think, a really important message today. Yeah, it doesn't sound that uh, dissimilar from today. When, when we have uh, people are touting what is sometimes called Christian nationalism, Kierkegaard thinks that nothing is more devastating to the church than to identify it with the nation state yep. or any political program of, the, of any kind, left or right. Uh, that's a huge, huge mistake. Mm -hmm. And so uh, on his view, we're always, of course, situated in a culture and in a nation, uh, but, but our primary citizenship is always in the kingdom of God. And mm -hmm. so we may be good citizens, we may be patriots, but but our ultimate loyalties must always be higher than any political program or any a national uh, agenda. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, before before next next, because it sounds since you've done so much study on Kierkegaard, um, and I haven't read as much obviously Kierkegaard as you have, or researched him anywhere near. Does he 
does he pull some stuff from Augustine? Does he pull some stuff from like City of God? Uh, he's he's he doesn't quote Augustine very often, but he is very Augustinian and yeah. certainly read Augustine carefully. He owned a, a complete edition of Augustine's works. Okay. Um, actually, there's a very fine book on Kierkegaard's relation to Augustine uh, in a series that I edited. I'm blanking on the name of the <laughs> author of that. Uh -huh. It's an Erdman's uh, book. Okay. Uh, and uh, it, it's a, a really interesting book. Huh. Another book in that series that I, it's going to come out very soon that I highly recommend is a book by Alan and Andrew Torrance on Kierkegaard's relation to Karl Barth. Okay. Important uh, theological figure in the 20th century. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, particularly, it hits on the whole idea of Barth's response to the Nazis and to uh, what was then kind of mm -hmm. Christian nationalism. Yep. Yep. And how he drew on Kierkegaard to yep. uh, have the resources. Yeah. Because there's the German Christian church at that time and they were yeah. very well tied to the Nazis. Yeah. They were very compromised. Yeah. And uh, awesome. Yeah. That's super helpful. Yeah. I think yeah. people may not have read Kierkegaard, but from what you're saying and kind of this in general, it, it does not sound dissimilar to what we find ourselves today. Um, and it's, I think it's a, it's a needed word for, for kind of our, 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 at least our culture in America today. And um, a lot of the polarity between two parties and one is so tied to the church and one is tied to the church in a different way. Yeah. Let, let me, let me say one more thing about Kierkegaard. You know, most people who know anything about Kierkegaard, they think of him as, quote, the father of existentialism. Yeah. And when you use that label, you naturally want to think of people like Sartre and Camus. Uh, and, and there's, of course, something true about that. Kierkegaard did influence those 20th century thinkers in many ways, but he's so vastly different from them that the label actually obscures more than it helps. And uh, I myself uh, like to think of Kierkegaard as like Augustine and C.S. Lewis mm -hmm. as yeah. a, a kind of Christian Platonist. Mm -hmm. so yeah. I think that's a better label for him yep. than uh, yeah. uh, existentialism. I yep. mean, like the existentialists, he does want to say that, that we as human selves are on a journey and that the self in some way is something that we have to become or achieve. Mm -hmm. But on Kierkegaard's view, the self we are supposed to achieve is the self that God created us to be. It's not something we invent ourselves. Yep. yep. And so, um, yeah, it's, all, it's a very different narrative. Yeah. There's been a lot of good recent research. I know there's been some older research, but more recent research on Christianity and Platonism and some of the relationship in that too. Yeah. Many, many of my intellectual heroes uh, like uh, Augustine and C.S. Lewis and Kierkegaard have a deep Platonic influence. And I, yep. uh, I, I do, I, I think of myself in that category as well totally yeah that's good you mentioned um c.s lewis because even when you're talking about kierkegaard um and and his view of uh the enlightenment and whatnot uh it made me think of c.s lewis's comment on chronological snobbery right so yeah. I, <laughs> so that's good and it sounds like kierkegaard is is a two kingdom type of person yeah, Kierkegaard is always making fun of the idea that we have to sort of stay up with the age or, yeah. you know, he, he thinks he just doesn't have any, any, uh, any interest in, mm -hmm. in intellectual fashions, you might yep. say. Yeah, neither do and, I. And like yeah. Lewis, like Lewis, <laughs> he's a, a real fan of old books. <laughs> yep, same here. Yeah, I yeah, like reading old stuff. He we'll likes get along. philosophy more than he likes modern philosophy. Totally. Same. So, yeah. We'd, we'd I, all I agree with him. 
We, yep. We'd all be good friends in the same room. That's good. Yeah, we like we like reading dead <laughs> people, which is always good. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, um, for a broad overview, get everyone up to speed. Uh, you don't need to get super specific about this answer, but what are the contours of Western philosophy from the pre-Socratic philosophers to the uh, current trek in modern and postmodernism? Yeah, that, that's probably too big of a question to answer. <laughs> uh, help yeah. me. Uh, sure. But I guess what I, what I would say is my, my history of, of Western philosophy, I try to be completely faithful and honest uh, to all the thinkers, including the non-Christian thinkers, yep. and fair to them in terms of explaining their views in a sympathetic way, because I think that's always, you don't want to set up straw men to, uh, to knock down. You want yep. to let, let listen to people, and there are things to be learned from non-Christian thinkers. So uh, that's very important. But uh, one of the things that I tried to do in the book is to uh, debunk a certain way of doing the history of philosophy, which you can see in, say, uh, the history of ancient philosophy. Ancient philosophy is sometimes depicted as sort of like, well, ancient peoples used to be very religious. They believed in mm -hmm. Zeus and whole, you know, the, the Homeric gods from the Iliad and the Odyssey. And then the philosophers came along and started thinking scientifically about yep. the world. And so we have a sort of a narrative that science replaces religion and that gives rise to philosophy. And I think that's just historically a false narrative. Yep. It is true that the ancient philosophers are very critical of what we might call a Homeric religion. They, they very, they're very critical of the stories about the gods that, that were popular in Greek mythology but not because they were trying to replace religion with something with science, say. They're actually interested deeply in what we might call a deeper, truer religion. Mm -hmm. So Plato and Aristotle are in some ways God-obsessed people. Mm -hmm. uh, they, the reason that they're so critical of Homer and, and the stories about Zeus and Apollo and all that is because they think that those are inadequate views of God. They're, yeah. they're, they're doing theology as much as philosophy. Yep. So one of the things I try and show is that the history of philosophy and the history of religion and theology are intertwined, and they remain that. Uh, and the people who claim that they are sort of neutral or indifferent, uh, that, that's a mistake. So mm -hmm. the history of Western philosophy is deeply shaped by different philosophers' views of God. If you look at, for example, uh, Locke, uh, mm -hmm. Locke writes a book, John Locke, The Reasonableness of Christianity, and uh, it's a big part of his life. Kant, who's often regarded as a great critic of religion because Kant criticized some of the proofs of God's existence, Kant himself was very interested in coming up with a, another account of religious faith. Uh, he came up with a moral argument belief in God to replace the arguments that he uh, criticized. So uh, Spinoza, who's sometimes uh, viewed as a kind of atheist hero, God is really the most important concept in Spinoza's philosophy, although Spinoza's God is not a personal God who, who can interact with humans in the way that the biblical God is. It's simply false to say that Spinoza is an a-religious thinker and not interested in a religious uh, concepts or ideas. So that's a big, a big part of what I try to show is that, uh, that uh, when philosophers do philosophy, they do it as whole people and they don't start from some neutral 
uh, objective perspective, but they they always have religious and uh, of course other kinds of of, of ideas and uh, that that shape the way they do things. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> One quick comment before my question, because it, it kind of uh, something that you said reminded me of this that I really liked in your book that you mentioned that just as God is um, has a, a covenant with Israel um, at the same time, he is priming the Greek philosophers for uh, one day, the gospel, because they are the Greek philosophers are the ancient Greek philosophers are searching for meaning and all that stuff. And then by the time Paul comes and explains the gospel to them, they, they've already been looking in their heart and mind for the gospel. They just didn't know it. Yeah, I, I believe that myself. It's, it's a controversial claim, of course. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not all yeah. the early Christian thinkers thought this way. Tertullian notably uh, uh, oh, yeah. diverged from that. But uh, I'm, uh, Augustine wrote a, a beautiful essay in which he more or less said, if Plato and his followers were alive today, they would rejoice because Christ has fulfilled their hopes. Hmm. Yeah. So that would be one way of saying... Uh, not that Plato was a Christian or that he understood everything uh, uh, about Christianity. His mm -hmm. view of God in many ways was not, not a Christian God. But there are many elements in Plato which, if you bring them into the context of Christianity, they really make more sense than they even do outside of Christianity. So, for example, Plato believed that there were perfect forms. They were... Mm -hmm perfect qualities, that there was such a thing as justice, an ideal of justice. Mm -hmm. There's such a thing as the good. Uh, but uh, it's sort of hard to imagine or understand what could these forms be? How do they exist? They're not physical. Mm -hmm. uh, but Augustine comes along and says, maybe they are God's ideas, uh, mm -hmm. the, the divine ideas. So that's a way of, you might say, locating these and making sense of these so when god creates the world he has uh he has ideas uh that in a sense provide the models the forms uh for for the, yep. for the creation yeah good so yeah and and just to sharpen uh my earlier question a little bit more because i know it was really broad um but who are the major players you describe in your most recent IVP academic book, this one, The History of Western Philosophy? And uh, what are their major contributions to the field of philosophy? Well, of course, it depends on the period you're talking about. Uh, in the ancient world, we have Socrates, who's a towering figure. Mm -hmm. uh, we have Plato and Aristotle. And then there are a bunch of schools that follow them. There's the Stoics. Mm -hmm. who have uh, very powerful, interesting ideas. Uh, there's the Epicureans, sort of the ancestors of contemporary mechanists, <laughs> the, the atomists. Mm -hmm. uh, there are the Neoplatonists, uh, and there are skeptics, people who basically say, we'll never know the truth, uh, all of which have contemporary counterparts. Mm -hmm. uh, the Middle Ages, of course, the great figures are people like Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus, uh, Anselm of Canterbury, uh, who are deeply Christian, although mm -hmm. they're also Islamic and Jewish philosophers in the period, but medieval philosophy tends to be deeply shaped by uh, religious ideas in whatever form. Yeah. In, in the modern period, and my book is almost 700 pages long, so it covers <laughs> yeah. a lot of territory, but, yep. yeah. Yeah. but I would say uh, 
in early modern philosophy, the, the major figures are the, the, the continental uh, rationalists like Descartes, uh, Rene Descartes, the French philosopher, uh, uh, Spinoza, Leibniz, while uh, going across the English Channel, the British uh, philosophers tended to be more empiricist minded, that is, they were more interested in experience. And we have John Locke and uh, George Berkeley, who was a bishop in the Anglican mm -hmm. Church, as well as David Hume, who's a really important figure because Hume grew up in a sort of reform context, but I think reacted strongly against that. Mm -hmm. And so Hume's philosophy is, uh, you might say, uh, somewhat antithetical to uh, to faith in, in many, many ways. Uh, but Hume's colleague in the Scottish Enlightenment, Thomas Reed, on the other hand, I see as a great champion. And I, I think Reed and Hume are the two important figures in, in the 18th century. And they're both Scottish philosophers. And uh, Reed is one of my intellectual heroes along with, uh, with Kierkegaard. He's a, and he, Reed has been a, a great inspiration to contemporary Christian philosophers. People like Alvin Plantiga and Nicholas Wolterstorff mm -hmm. have really uh, taken some of Reed's insights and developed them in powerful ways in the contemporary situation and showed their helpfulness to Christianity and theology. Mm -hmm. Hey all, this is Peter, one of the co-hosts of the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast with a word from one of our sponsors, our title sponsor at Logos Bible Software. Have you gotten your free book of the month from Logos yet? Join tens of thousands of believers who build their library with a free new digital theological book each and every month. Then read it on the free Logos Bible Study app. Logos is the easiest to use, most powerful Bible study tool on the planet. You heard that right, on the planet. It works on mobile, the web, and even has an amazing app for your laptop. I myself use the mobile app every night to read from the Hebrew, the Greek, and a few other resources. I love it. I've used other apps, and this is the best one on the market. It really, truly is. And if you want to go even deeper, you can choose from a vast selection of the top books for in-depth Bible study. There's also step-by-step -step videos to help you learn how to study the Bible like a pro. So get your free book of the month today. Go to logos.com slash guiltgrace and get started with Logos today. We have this link in our show notes. So just open up our podcast, find our show notes, click this link, and you can get started with us with Logos Bible Software. John Calvin said that faith is the axis around which everything in the Christian life rotates. And what a truth this is. And this year, Westminster Seminary California's annual conference will be focusing on faith specifically, exploring various facets of doctrine and life as they touch upon the centrality of our faith in this Christian life. And bringing these messages are Westminster's own and my former professors, including Dr. Michael Horton on the Anchor of Faith, Dr. W. Robert Godfrey on the Crisis of Faith, Dr. Craig Troxell on the Heart of Faith, Dr. Bradley Bittner on the Hope of Faith, and Westminster President Joel Kim on the Gift of Faith. This conference is a delight because it's a really unique opportunity to listen to these seasoned pastors and theologians share from God's word to help us in our Christian pilgrimage. There are few conferences, if any, with so much theological power and such a small and intimate package. And in tandem with this annual conference is another seminary for a day where you can attend classes, 
We have professors and students, see the campus, and so much more. I myself did this in March of 2019, and I loved it. If you come, you're eligible to receive a $400 travel grant to cover your expenses. From faith to faith, the power of God for the Christian life is happening January 13th to 14th, and registration is open now. Go to www.wscal.edu slash conference for more information and to save your spots or go to our show notes for the same link and reserve your spots. Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, his gospel and his church. Yeah. And maybe just to kind of peel the onion back even more. I know I started very broad and I promise I'm getting a little bit more filtered down and you've mentioned some really great philosopher names throughout uh, both ancient uh, philosophy to up to uh, more Western philosophy. And um, I know there's, there's some more main names than others. And maybe there's some names that uh, unfortunately people don't know enough about that should know more about, but um, you know, Augustine, a giant figure, especially even uh, for Christianity. um, I had a, last reading about him and you know even origin and some of these other people but i don't want to um specify this just to ancient greek philosophers but uh, maybe overall just to take this moment in time to like could you name off maybe two or three of your favorite or the most important you feel like you need to maybe <clears throat> dig in and explain a little bit more for the audience that uh, might not know who they are yeah well i i think probably uh I, I think that uh, certainly I have spent my most of my about half of my intellectual work has been on Kierkegaard, and I think mm-hmm. Kierkegaard definitely is someone that uh, Christians need to know and understand. Um, uh, he's just a, a giant figure in so so many ways. Uh, probably the most important Christian thinker since the Middle Ages. That would be my my assessment of him. Uh, mm-hmm. He was Lutheran, not not mm-hmm. not classically Reformed. However, uh, there are many elements in Kierkegaard's thought that resonate with Reformed thinking. For example, one thing uh, he he is a big element in his thought is what I call his perspectival view. Mm-hmm. He's constantly trying to show that there's a deep contrast between distinctively Christian biblical uh, views of things and what he would call the way the worldly mind thinks about it. It's very similar to what someone like uh, Abraham Kuyper would call the antithesis. I was about to say, it sounds Kuyperian. Yeah, it sounds very Kuyperian, and that's been recognized. I have friends who are Kuyperians in the Netherlands who are, just love Kierkegaard. They see mm-hmm. him as a, mm-hmm. a sort of brother. <laughs> it's a little, vent, it's a vent, it's Ventilian too, because he, he uses that for the, like the deeper antithesis. Yeah, it, definitely. There are differences too, but, yep. but those are strong points of... Uh, of similarity. So, for example, I, I was just, I'm working right now on Kierkegaard's great book, Works of Love, which could usefully, by the way, be compared with C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, that both mm-hmm. sort of Christian accounts of love, which relate uh, charity or love of the neighbor to other kinds of love, like marital, romantic love, friendship love, and, and so on. And they, I think their overall views are, are quite, quite similar. But um, where, where was I, I going? Well, I'm just going to say in, in Works of Love, Kierkegaard basically says 
if you look in the pagan world prior to Christianity, you will see they will glorify friendship and they will glorify romantic love. They write, the poets write these beautiful things, but they don't have a grasp. They have never even thought of the idea that we have such a thing as love of the neighbor, where the neighbor includes your enemy. That, he says, required God's revelation to bring that idea. And it's simply antithetical to the way the worldly mind typically thinks. The worldly mind thinks, love your friends, hate your enemies. Uh, the idea that we must love our enemies is so radical. Yeah. It so goes against our natural inclinations that only uh, a supernatural revelation, which can, you might say, correct our sinful uh, simple shaped views on these things. Uh, so that, that, that antithesis is very strongly there in uh, Kierkegaard's book, Works of Love. He's mm -hmm. constantly uh, contrasting uh, the Christian view and, and, and arguing that we shouldn't take it for granted. Just because Christianity, he says, is 1,800 years old, <laughs> we, uh, we shouldn't think that we can take it for granted. We ought to understand how marvelously powerful and original it is and how much it goes against our natural uh, human inclinations which are shaped by sinfulness mm -hmm. yeah that's good um, so uh, that's that's an important thing if i was going to talk about one other figure mm -hmm. i would talk about thomas reed because mm -hmm. yeah. i'm i'm gonna i'm gonna paint with a very broad brush here. <laughs> yeah uh, i would say if you were going to contrast ancient philosophy with modern philosophy one, one point of contrast would be this. Almost all the ancient philosophers, and Plato and Aristotle say this explicitly, would say, philosophy begins when we wonder about the world. Hmm. Something about the world makes us wonder. We are amazed. But modern philosophy begins not with wonder, but with doubt. Descartes, his whole project was, look, we don't really know what we know anymore. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a mess. Mm -hmm. uh, there are all these religious arguments and science is changing and what I was taught in school doesn't seem true. And so Descartes says, we need to, we need to nail everything down. We need a, a, a point of certainty. Mm -hmm. I'm going to doubt everything that I've been taught and only believe what I can show to be true beyond any possible doubt. So modern philosophy begins with doubt. Now, Kierkegaard thinks, and Thomas Reed thinks, that that is a mistake. Mm -hmm. that, uh, uh, that, in fact, if we, if we begin with doubt, we never actually get out of doubt. <laughs> mm -hmm. Kierkegaard thought the idea of doubting everything you believe is actually impossible. But it's a good thing it's impossible, because if you succeeded, you would never overcome your doubt. You'd be, mm -hmm. you'd be caught in a morass of skepticism. And one of the things that uh, Reed's philosophy is sometimes called the philosophy of common sense. And that's- a, I'm about a to say, I know that name because I, I know that philosophy. It's a misleading term. It had a huge influence on uh, Presbyterianism in North America. Yep. Yeah, it's, that's Princeton Seminary right there. Yeah, Princeton Seminary was deeply shaped by Reed and, and uh, sometimes it's called Scottish realism, yep. common yep. sense realism. But basically, Reed says something like what Kierkegaard says that if we really want to make progress in coming to know things, we have to start not with doubt, but with faith. We have to start with trusting our faculties. Uh, 
that are God-given. And we have to, not that they're perfect, not that they're infallible. And, and in fact, he rejects the whole idea that we have to have some sort of, uh, some sort of perfection in our faculties that will allow us to eliminate the possibility of mistakes. We, uh, so one of the things that I appreciate about both Reed and Kierkegaard is that they come to terms with our finitude. Uh, and Kierkegaard especially also comes to terms with our sinfulness. Yep. But without becoming skeptics or despairing of our ability to grasp the truth. So I think they provide us with a kind of model of how uh, we can have, uh, you might say, a theological stance which is humble, shows a certain intellectual humility, but does not succumb to despair or skepticism or uh, giving up of objective truth, but still enables us to hold on to uh, convictions. Mm. Mm. And, they, and you do mention in your book, I just got done reading it uh, before the recording, and some of, it even ties to some of Augustine was talking about how faith, truth, and knowledge are, uh, you know, relating to each other as well. Yeah, it's a very big theme in Augustine. He says, I believe so that I may understand. Mm -hmm. uh, faith seeking understanding. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that's really Reed's view too, that, uh, that we have to begin with uh, certain kinds of faith or we won't, won't make any progress at all. Uh, not that our, you know, take memory. Uh, someone like David Hume thinks that uh, in order for us to trust our memory, we need evidence that memory is reliable. Mm -hmm. But Reed pointed out that it's impossible to come up with evidence for memory without using memory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Circular. That's if you yeah. couldn't remember anything, you wouldn't be able to come up with any evidence <laughs> for the reliability yeah, of memory. Yeah. And uh, so your head spin. <laughs> this is really what Reed Reed has in mind when he talks about common sense, it's not like, well, listen to your grandmother. She has a lot of common sense. No, it's not nothing like that. Mm. He thinks that there are something like first principles mm -hmm. that are grounded in our intellectual faculties. And although our intellectual faculties are fallible, they are still somewhat trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it, it seems as if the, if we don't begin with having a certain degree of trust in those faculties, we'll never be able to uh, make any progress at all. So uh, for example, Reed says, uh, making fun of Descartes, he says, uh, this is an allusion to something Descartes talks about. He says, a man who believes that his head is made of straw uh, may be suffering from uh, uh, a malady of certain sorts, but it's not a malady that philosophy will be able to cure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not the kind of illness that philosophy is going to help you with. Mm -hmm. If you think your head is made of straw, you have bigger problems than, <laughs> yeah. than thinking better. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so um, with my last question, and I'll, I'll let uh, Peter ask some as well, but um, you can get as personal as you want on this or not. But as a Christian... How does your philosophical studies help and inform you and also in engaging with non-Christians? Oh, well, I, I think uh, as a Christian, I want to say that uh, ultimately faith is not something made possible by philosophy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. It's more that um, faith is is God's gift, something that God uh, God grants you. It's uh, that's a, a classically reformed claim. Mm -hmm. It's not a human achievement. It's not something that we can uh, create on our own. Um, so uh, when Manuel Kant writes a book called Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone, mm -hmm. he, he may be talking about religion, but he's not talking about Christian faith because Christian faith is not something that is the product of human reason. And that's a, that's a big theme in Kierkegaard and a big theme in, uh, I think, all the important Christian uh, thinkers. So, but what, what can philosophy do? Well, philosophy can, at the very least, I think, help inoculate us against certain kinds of objections or doubts or problems that might uh, worry us. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's important to see, uh, for, for example, I think ultimately, if you ask, how, how, how do I come to know that the, uh, the New Testament, let's say, gives me a truthful account of, of the way things are and a truthful view of Jesus and who Jesus is? I don't think that's something that uh, can be based primarily simply on historical biblical scholarship. I think ultimately the, the internal witness of the spirit uh, is, uh, plays a huge, huge role. But I think historical biblical scholarship can play a nice role if someone says, well, I can prove that the Bible is just a human book, or I can show that it's full of, of gross errors and so on. I think biblical scholarship can block those kinds of attacks, can show that they are unfounded. Uh, so I would say the same thing about philosophy that I would say about a biblical scholarship, that it, uh, I think it, it can, and it can also, I'll put it this way, very often uh, unbelievers take the standpoint that somehow religious faith is something very risky. On their view, uh, this is the picture that I often get when I'm talking with atheist philosophers. They yeah. say, well, look, uh, you and I, we all believe in stars and we believe in animals and plants and we believe in the earth and the sun and so on. Uh, and then you, you believe in something more. You believe in this being called God. It's like you've added one more thing to your ontology or your, your view of the universe. Uh, and on, from the non-believer's point of view, this is like believing in fairies or believing mm -hmm. in Santa Claus. And they say, the burden of proof is entirely on you. Uh, you have this one additional thing. Why would you believe in it? Well, I think there are good reasons to believe in God. I think uh, I, I think we can we can say show how God makes sense of the world. But the most important thing to say is there's no special burden of proof here, because everyone has a sort of metaphysical view, a view of reality. So the uh, the the naturalist or uh, the materialist who thinks that there's just physical stuff and it's just there and there's no ex explanation for it. That's a metaphysical view, and it has all kinds of problematic uh, points of view. So I think philosophy helps us see that the burden of proof is not simply on the religious believer, that the religious believer through philosophy can raise questions and doubts and show weak points in the non-believer's worldview. 
that show that we're uh, in a sense having a conversation where uh, the it's not as if they're on a secure standpoint uh, hmm. and uh, and the religious believer is somehow has a very risky standpoint i hope that, i hope that makes sense yeah that does yeah um so last last two questions the, the last one's a lot easier to, this one's not hard but um just is there is there any common um you've kind of teased this out a little bit is there any common threads from kind of homeric to or like pre or from homeric to like greek like greco-roman to medieval like is there is there a common thread philosophically that we can see um and then how does this relate to potentially our own faith and what the bible says and, and is there like any anything that's similar that we can engage with so is there is there a common thread within kind of the history of this western philosophy well i don't i don't know i mean one thing is i see the history of philosophy as a kind of continued uh conversation where they're between a sort of a, a naturalistic view mm -hmm. uh, which often shows itself in ethics in terms of a uh, the good life is just the life in which we uh, enjoy sensual pleasures or mm -hmm. uh, you know hedonism uh, there's uh, idealism that says no no the, the physical world is not all there is there's a higher spiritual reality uh, of various kinds uh, and then there's the theistic view seems to me that you have a kind of conversation going on you can see that in the ancient world you can see it in the in the modern world too in a way the conversation never ends because uh, no no one party can sort of speak carry the day i think i think that shows that the issues are not totally intellectual hmm. in nature uh, that in in many ways the most important question i would ask uh someone who's uh doesn't believe in god is not why don't you believe in god but do you wish that there were a God? <laughs> if there were a God, would you be happy about that? Hmm. Because I think that, uh, to, in my mind, the world with the God in it is immeasurably a better world, a richer world, a deeper world. Uh, even the problem of evil, uh, hmm. if there's a God, uh, of course, there are many questions. Why does God allow evil and suffering? And I, I don't have the answers to those questions or claim to have the answers. But I would say this, that if there's a God, we may hope that evil will be defeated, that there mm -hmm. will be a meaning, that there will be a purpose. If there's no God, we still have all the evil we had before, <laughs> mm. but now we have no hope. We mm -hmm. have no... Uh, yeah, no you're faced with the same question, but you have a, di a slightly different endpoint. But we have no, a very uh, different endpoint. Uh, so, so I would say, uh, and, and I think Kierkegaard would say this too, that... Uh, in many ways, the most important question is, uh, if you if you really can see the, the beauty and goodness of God, and you want God to be there, uh, then you will find a way, it seems to me, uh, eventually. Although, I, like C.S. Lewis and like Kierkegaard, I, I'm inclined to think that some people only find the truth after death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kierkegaard has a funny comment in one of his latest, latest books. He's talking about contemporary Europe, and he says, what Europe needs is a new Socrates. <laughs> he says, we need a new Socrates to get rid of some of the bad <laughs> philosophy around. 
Mm -hmm. He says, now I'm well, I'm well aware that Socrates was not a Christian. And then he has in parentheses, although I'm convinced he has long since become one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good, that's a good way. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's awesome. So we'll, we'll end, we'll conclude the same way you conclude this book um, with their conclusions to some lessons from the history of Western philosophy so what what should we learn? Like, what do you what do you talk about in this chapter for what we should learn from the history of Western philosophy? Well, in the last chapter, one of the points I make is that there's a big contrast that you can see between uh, the philosophy of modern philosophers tend to be what are called classical foundationists. They're obsessed with epistemology or theory of knowledge, and they're strongly devoted to the idea that we need some sort of absolute foundation of certainty. And they're all looking for a method, the method that will give us that certainty. So in the book, I try and show all the different views of what that method is, but they're all in, in, engaged in that quest, all except, I think, for Reed and Kierkegaard, who are the big exceptions. Uh, but in the contemporary world, we have some people who are called postmodernists who are mm -hmm. disillusioned with that whole project. They think. Uh, that the quest for certainty is a big mistake. John Dewey wrote a book called The Quest for Certainty in which he said that's the mistake of Western philosophy. They're always looking for this absolute certainty and they can never find it. Uh, I, I think there's something to be said for Dewey's point. The problem is that at least some of the people who then come to that insight give up altogether on objective truth. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they instead say, well, philosophy is just a power game or it's just, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's, a, it's identity politics uh, and truth claims are just ways of trying to impose your will on, on other people and things mm -hmm. like that. I think that uh, the Christian can find a way to have a more humble and modest view of our human capacities, but still hold on to the idea that there is objective truth, that even though our grasp of that truth isn't perfect, uh, and, and we're probably going to make mistakes. Uh, we can trust that uh, what we need to know and what's important to know that God will help us to know. Uh, so we have enough uh, through, through our, our human capacities and ultimately through, uh, through the revelation that God has given us in, in Christ. So uh, that, that's really, uh, that's the main thing I would wanna say is that there's a way of, of you might say threading the needle between the, uh, the the classical foundationalism that we see in the Enlightenment and the, the more skeptical uh, despair that sometimes you see. Uh, Richard Rorty, before he died, equipped at one point, the truth is what your friends will let you get away with saying. Well, that's a pretty low view of truth. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you, better, you better have the right friends. <laughs> that's right, yeah. That's <clears throat> Something I've always thought that was really interesting too, just popped in my head. Um, even the man who killed Jesus, Pontius Pilate, asked him, what is truth? Yeah, true. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Dr. Evans, thank you <clears throat> so much for coming on, for both talking about your book and philosophy in general and, and all these different philosophers and, and using research to help us out and help our listeners. It's been a pleasure having you on. I don't know if there's anything you want to end on well, with or, or lastly. I'll say, say something about truth. Kierkegaard is famous for having said truth is subjectivity. And many, many people confuse that with saying truth is subjective, but that's yeah. not what he had in mind. He actually was thinking of Jesus. 
when hmm. Jesus says, I am the truth. And what Kierkegaard oh, is saying is that the subject, yeah. Jesus doesn't just teach us the truth. He is the truth. He embodies the truth in the way he lived. And for Kierkegaard, the way we lived is shaped by our subjectivity, by who we love, what we love. Uh, and, and Jesus provides the model for true subjectivity hmm. in, in that sense. So anyway, that's, that's yeah. a little Kierkegaard lesson there. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah. John 14, six. Yeah. 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 No, well, yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Evans. It's been a pleasure having you on, talking about your book. And um, yeah, I hope all goes well and um, that you that you heal up quick from your yeah, injury. It's, healing it's up for me, double knee operation. So <laughs> yeah. well, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed talking with both of you and yeah. uh, wish you all the best. Yep, thank, thank you. you. All right. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And if you go to our show notes, as a reminder, there is a link to Patreon and you can find out how to become a bridge builder. Yeah, we've got five different support levels and the levels go from uh, just a, a $5 donation to help keep the lights on and, and get some equipment all the way up to you guys get to be part of our decision-making process for episodes, for content, for authors, for guests, whoever it may be. And you guys get consistent conversations, maybe even since our episodes, the second that we record them, instead of having to wait for episodes to come out. So look at that, see what you wanna do. As part of that, we have a goal to get about $1,000 a month. That's to cover some costs, get some new equipment, and just hire some people as well. And also, if you guys can rate and review us on iTunes, on Spotify, on any one of your podcasting platforms, this is the number one way besides word of mouth that word gets out about what we're doing. So we hope to see you guys next week.